In 2010, the CDC officially declared the United States was dealing with an opioid crisis. On average, 130 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. In 2016, the American Society of Addiction Medicine reported that four out of five heroin users started out misusing prescription painkillers. And the National Institute on Drug Abuse reported on a University of Michigan study which stated that 30% of teens who misuse prescription drugs take them from leftover medications that are not properly destroyed. Welcome to the official podcast of NASCA, the National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities. Here you will find conversations, lectures, and thoughts on various topics involving controlled substances, leading experts sharing their knowledge and ideas on today's medications, dangerous drugs, and substance abuse. NASCA is an association of state government agencies, along with various stakeholders, who oversee controlled substances. Through this association, we work together to make our country, our world, a safer place. We've been in the midst of an opioid epidemic for 10 years now, and some would argue that it's moved beyond just prescription painkillers, especially given the rise of cocaine and methamphetamine in the United States. We've known for many years that people illegally obtain medications from the volumes of unused medicines we all store in our homes, whether they're painkillers, benzodiazepines, stimulants, or other abused medications. My grandfather was a World War II veteran. He was at Normandy, and he went through the Great Depression. He knew the value of everything, and medicines are expensive, so he wasn't going to throw them away if he had them because he might need them at some future point. Him and I were very close, and it wouldn't have taken anything for me to go to his house, go into his medicine cabinet, and take a handful of meds. In fact, a few days ago, I was speaking with a nurse that I had arrested over eight years ago for stealing medications at the hospital where she worked. And we were discussing the various ways that she used to obtain pills when she was in the middle of her addiction. And just like anyone else, she used all the known methods to illegally obtain pills. And one of the ways was through her relative's medicine cabinets. And she shared with me about how she would visit her grandmother, who had a stockpile of unused Vicodin pills, and she would take them handfuls at a time. And that's what this episode is all about. How we need to safely store, safely track, and safely dispose of our medications. And I decided to start by talking to Dave Dryden, who was the former director of the Office of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs for the state of Delaware. And Dave has a really impressive background in law enforcement, but he's also a pharmacist with a law degree. So we talked about how Delaware began drug take-back events, which was one of the first in the country. And I got some insight into how that all started. And he also shared his preferred methods of destroying medications. And then in the second part of our program, I sat down with Carrie Miller. And Carrie is from the company RX Destroyer. And they had a vendor table at NASCA's annual training conference last year. And when I saw the table, I realized that they had products that weren't just for healthcare facilities, but they also had them for the consumer to safely dispose of unwanted medications. So I wanted to sit down with her for a few minutes and talk a little bit more about those products. And I have that interview for you right after the break. But first, to start our program, here's my interview with Dave Dryden. 
So I'm here with Dave Dryden. I have Dave on the phone. And Dave, I want to thank you for being on the podcast for us here on the NASCA podcast. It's um, my pleasure. Really appreciate it. And you have a really impressive background. I really couldn't do it justice, but just a law degree and as a pharmacist and law enforcement officer, I think you're the perfect person to lead us into this topic about securing medications and really properly disposing of them. So maybe if you could just for the listeners, just give your your background and some of the stuff that you've done that you have listed. Sure, sure. No problem. As you said, I went to uh, pharmacy school, became a pharmacist through the uh, Philadelphia College of Pharmacy. Worked with a little bit with uh, Merck in, in production and manufacturing, uh, just for a short time, regulatory affairs, and then went into uh, sales with Smith Klein, and that allowed me to, um, to not only do the sales job, but I also went to law school at night and got my law degree. So I, I did become a pharmacist and a lawyer. Shortly thereafter, what I did was I, I obtained the job as the director of the Office of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. That's the state Delaware's version of the DEA. Along with that, you know, it was a controlled substance authority, but along with that was also within there was the being the executive secretary for the Board of Pharmacy. And as you said, I was also, well, we also had in Delaware, being you had all three, we had law enforcement along with that. So I was a sworn in officer. So, so at any one day, you know, I could you know, be speaking with a pharmacist about their license. The next minute I could be, you know, speaking to DEA about diversion and about drug disposals. Uh, the next minute I could be writing the uh, cocaine crack law and be, go before the Senate. And then the next minute I could be on a drug raid with the state police. So it was a really rewarding career. I, I did that for over 20 years. I uh, retired just a couple of years ago. Now I'm just consulting, but, but uh, I enjoyed every minute of it and um, wonderful to experience that. Well, that's really an, an impressive background and very well diverse to, in the subject matter too. And like I said, what we're really aiming for with this podcast is to talk about how people can secure their medications and then of course, destroy them properly. So maybe you could talk about because you and I had actually had a discussion uh, not too long ago about Delaware and what you guys had done involving drug take back and, and drug destruction. Maybe you could describe that for us. Yeah, it was, it was really kind of thrown at us, to be candid with you. We had a nurse. This was way before the DEA uh, disposal take backs and stuff like that. This is years before that. A nurse that was in Delaware had uh, she was going for her doctorate. And she wrote a thesis, and her thesis was basically on drug destruction and, and the problems with having all these drugs out there and what it was doing with our water supply and this and that and everything else. And, and she came to me and she wanted to do a drug take, a controlled substance take back. And, it, and at first, to be candid with you, I wasn't into it. I, you know, I was, I, was a, I was the state's version of the DEA. I didn't want anything to do with something like this. And, I, you know, every, nobody was really doing this back then. None of the states were really, my knowledge was really doing that, a lot of drug take backs or anything like that. In any case, you know, it went on for a few months. She would, she would speak with me and different things like that. And finally, after, after probably a third or fourth discussion with her and, and a little bit of pushing this from the governor's office, we, we did our first, first drug disposal. It was really kind of, it was something because our, our drug disposal was basically, she, she picked the site, not me. But our first drug disposal, she advertised, you know, that we were going to be taking back control substances. And she did the first disposal at a senior center. And it was a senior center. It was probably the worst situation. It was probably the worst place you could have done it. It had about six or eight, you know, entrances. And they all kind of went down hallways to one main lobby. And that's where we were. We were so we had multiple entrances, multiple exits. I was right in the, in the lobby there, right in front of, I mean, it was a senior center where there was like uh, little old ladies doing their 
their aerobics for the morning and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm having nightmares about, you know, somebody coming in and, you know, and trying to confiscate controlled substances from us because that's all we were doing is, you know, she was advertising controlled substance take back. So what we ended up doing was we ended up just picking one, one area, that one entrance at, at the open area. And I stuck myself in the corner. I had law enforcement, a, a, a car probably within 15, 20 yards of me. He had his eye on me the whole day. Uh, it was something. But that was our first take back. We didn't really take back a lot. I mean, most of the drugs were taken back from the seniors that were at that senior center. But it was our first. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. You know, and, and I just kind of like you. I mean, I've been in law enforcement my whole career. I've never been a, a pharmacist. But I didn't start doing diversion until about 2007. So prior to that, I understand what you're saying about there just really wasn't a whole lot of interest back then. With even pharmaceutical investigations, it was sort of on the, the fringe, and it was sort of the older guys that did it that were at the end of their careers because everybody wanted to you know, be Crockett and Tubbs at that time and right, run around right. and get kilos of cocaine and that sort of thing, and it's just changed so much. But that's really a lot of forethought on her part and you guys in Delaware to, to do that because, as we now know, um, this is, of course, you know, one of the number one sources for teenagers is stealing medications from friends and relatives' sure. medicine cabinets. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what, what yeah. changes did you see after doing that initial drug take back? <laughs> well, we, well, the first thing I did was I had a meeting with the DEA in our area. And we sat down and kind of went over if, if we were going to do. They, they weren't really into me doing this either, you know. I, and I, I wasn't either. But you know, we started. It, it started to be gradual. So the first thing we did was we limited it to only secure places, and we we actually limited it to any future disposal sites to be at law enforcement offices. So you know, it would be at the troop or you know one of our you know Newcastle County or something like that police stations you know whatever it was at a law enforcement site we had a number before this is way before the DEA disposals we had a number of, of takebacks and probably there was all, and, and I'd say 99% of them were were at law enforcement offices we did we did have one at the our one of our biggest hospitals our biggest hospital in in the in the, in the state is Christiana Hospital and they had um they had their own security and different things like that. So we had law enforcement personnel plus their security, and we allowed it there. But for the most part, we, we did it at law enforcement sites. The other thing we did was we determined that it wasn't a really good idea to take back injectables and aerosols, at least not for us. See, what, what we had was um, we, were, we, were, we were concerned about the injectables and aerosols exploding in our in our when we when we disposed of the medication we were really lucky in Delaware we have a huge pharmaceutical company here that has a huge I'm talking huge burner so you know we could basically set this up where and and Delaware's a small state that you know the furthest you have to drive is 2 hours and be through the whole state so we could basically you know do a take back Close, you know, close the close the take back down at one or two o'clock in the afternoon. And be at the burn site, you know, within a half an hour, an hour at the most, and and discard the medication at that point. I mean, we'd actually fire the medication up. We'd throw it on the burner, we fire it up, and then I'd go over and check to make sure it was all gone. And we would so it was it was a one day thing. But we didn't want the injectables and aerosols because they would they would explode and could could damage the burner. And of course, things, you know, things are a lot different now compared to what they were. So sure. when you guys were doing it, were you looking just for controls or was it all medications? It was all medications back then. We, we did it. We did all medications. We, we, 
you know, and you know, that's kind of interesting. You said that I was thinking about this when you were, when we were first talking, you know, you know, everybody, you know, now we have the DEA that's doing these take backs and stuff like that, but really it should be the DEA and the boards of pharmacy because the boards of pharmacy really have jurisdiction over not just the controls, but the non-controls. DEA doesn't really have jurisdiction over non-controlled substances and they're doing these take backs that deal with non-controlled substances. So, so really it's kind of a mutual thing. The DEA should be involved, but the, the boards should likewise be part of the whole part of the whole deal. You have so many folks that are doing different combinations of medications just so they can get higher, they can avoid withdrawal. It even seems to be more so now, especially as regulations have tightened on controls. What's your take on that? I think that 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 there's a lot of that there's a lot of challenges out there for us. One of the things that came up with us was one of the challenges was that, you know, to have a secure site, you know, a law enforcement area close to the disposal, to time it all right. We also had a challenge of identifying and, and having to count. See, what happened was the DEA, they agreed to have, let us, let us do this, these take backs. They weren't really into it at first, so they agreed to it. But then what they did was they told us, they said, well, you know, you can do these take backs, but we want you to identify the medication. We want you to tell us how many controlled substance tablets of Vicodin, Vicodin you took in. So you can imagine what, what happened here. You know, you had, you know, somebody walking into our disposal and they would have a huge plastic bag of different drugs. They'd just throw, you know, 30 different vials into a, into a plastic bag. And we'd get this plastic bag and we'd have to first separate all the drug. Then we'd have to identify each drug. Then we'd have to identify if there was a controlled substance there. And then we'd have to count it. If you've ever been to a DEA take back, think about that, man. It was it was outrageous what we had to do, and uh, and we'd have like you know ten pharmacists there to do all this kind of stuff to identify and account, and it was it was a mess. And and then finally, you know, another thing that came about with these with all these take backs and stuff was the practitioner samples. We had a problem with that too. You know, docs have they get a lot of samples and a lot of times these docs would, would get samples that they didn't really want. You know, they, you know, salespeople would just get into their sample closet or, or they would just drop something off and then go, you know, running away. And so it's, we had practitioners that were coming up to disposals and trying to get rid of all their sample products. I had one guy that drove up in a van that was completely filled with samples, basically a whole room. And we didn't allow that to be candid with you. We didn't allow that at the beginning because, because we were concerned that, you know, there's the FDA has certain requirements on non-controlled substances on samples. And then you also had controlled substance, you know, documentation and different things like that. So they you know there was no real documentation there. So we we would just basically tell them that they had to use a reverse distributor to, to get rid of all this stuff, which was kind of it was kind of in, in retrospect. It was a good thing because practitioners became more aware of what they of what they were taking in. A lot of these docs would, would simply state, you know, I don't take back. I don't take samples any longer or they were or they would just take samples that they were going to use for different patients and stuff like that. They're samples that they, the drugs that they would use. So it was really good in a lot of different ways. I can't imagine counting uh, the medications or accounting for them the way you're describing. The one time I can remember one time we had one of the takes back. Now this is right before the DEA had their first disposal. So all the DEA guys were now, they're interested. They knew that they were going to have to do it and they were all interested. So we had the big supervisor for the, for the state of Pennsylvania, you know, most of the state of Pennsylvania, the whole state of Delaware. He come, she comes down and she brings nine or 10 of her DEA agents and stuff like that. So we're sitting here 
and we're doing all this counting and identifying and all this stuff. And it was a nice spring day. It was like the first day of spring or something like a beautiful sunny day. You know, we haven't seen the sun in three months and all this kind of stuff. And all the, and the DEA guys wouldn't help. They didn't want to touch the medication. They didn't want to, they were allowing, you know, they said, you know, you can do this because you're a controlled substance authority and all this stuff, but we don't want to be part of it. So they wouldn't touch it. So I had like 10 DEA agents that were all sitting outside sunning themselves. And we're, meanwhile, we're like balls to the wall inside doing identification and counting and stuff. It was, it was something that something to be seen. Yeah. I can't imagine. I, I know we measured of course in tons, which is, you know, right. how, how much is destroyed. So sitting right. through and, and disposing or counting them and accounting for them that way would just be a nightmare. But right. yeah. so, so let's talk a, a, just for a minute about the harder it is for people to destroy medications, the more inclined they're going to be to either hoard them or to dispose of them in a way that we don't want them disposed of, which would be the, you know, the toilet or the trash. So maybe you can just address why it's important for folks not to uh, just flush their medications or to, or to put them in the general trash. Well, I think what happened was a long time ago, we, we, we realized that, you know, that, that drugs were going into our water supplies and our different ground supplies and different things like that. And, you know, you've heard all kinds of horror stories about how, you know, fish are all kinds of mutations occurring and different and you test the water and you see that opiates are in our water supply you know just a whole whole mess i think that that you know we're becoming more aware our planet is becoming more aware of what kind of things we're doing that that we need to you know we we don't need to close our eyes and just continue doing what we're doing we had to make some changes and i think that that's real important i think that it's real important for people to know that that they have to properly store medication that that temperature physical physical controls of temperature and humidity are really important with their medications to keep it in a in a safe spot away from pets and children to where they can where they can harm themselves with it and also keep it away from you know in a decent place where they can keep it away from bad guys i mean we've had horror stories where people come into somebody's house and they go right to the medicine cabinet and when they're when they're not looking and and take their medicine and stuff like that or or kids that like you said earlier you know about the kids you know like in high school or something like that where they have parties with with different medications i i think everybody's just becoming more aware of what what is needed and what's important out there and I think that's really important, especially for the average person. You know, you mentioned starting the take backs at a senior center, but obviously that wasn't about the senior center as much as it was about a place to have other folks bring it in. But even right. senior centers themselves, seniors have medications and they store them. And Absolutely. You know, medications aren't cheap, so sometimes you might hang on to it just because you might need it at a later date, but then it expires, which can be dangerous, as well as the fact it can be stolen. So. But there's some products out there. Are you familiar with any products that to make it easier for folks at home to use that you could talk about? Yeah, sure. I, you know, products that I, I kind of like three different ways. Of course, you have the take back, the take backs, the DEA take backs, which destroyed the medication. But to be candid with you, I mean, I like that. It's, it's a good way, but that's not my favorite. My favorite way is these home destructive in, the, the substances that make the drugs inactive and that patients can use the, you know, the patients can use on their own medication when, when something's not wanted any longer or if it's expired or then they're not going to use it. Um, you, you mix it with these different agents and it deactivates the drug and, and then, and then allows, you know, deactivated medication to be properly, you know, placed in a trash or whatever. I also, to be candid with you, I always liked the FDA. 
way of disposing of medications. That, that's my second choice. My first choice would be the inactivating agents. My second choice would be the FDA's way of destroying medications. I mean, the FDA has always said that what we, do, we should do with unwanted medication is, is you know, mix those uh, products with coffee grounds or or something like that, and place it in our trash, you know, on the day of pickup or whatever, away from kids and and pets and stuff like that. I mean, that that's a good choice too. I mean, there's different things that we can do. They all have pluses and minuses. I mean, you probably, you know, somebody, you know, one of your other the people out there listening to this, uh, they'll say, hey, listen, I I like this better. I like that better. I mean, there's there's all different kinds of ways to destroy. The fact is, is that I think we need to to think about that. I mean the different ways that we can destroy medication. I think that practitioners need to become aware of, and I think they are more aware of the, of the amounts of medication that they're prescribing, the different kinds. Maybe, you know, sometimes you don't, you know, I'm going to have a procedure next week, a surgical procedure. You know, they want to, they're probably going to want to give me opiates. I'm not going to take those opiates. I might take a prescription if I really, really needed it. I might get it, but I doubt it. I'll use a non-steroidal instead. You know, so I think Practitioner awareness is real important that, you know, not just with the type of drug that they're going to be prescribing, the quantities that are important and stuff like that. It used to be, you know, 10 years, 20 years ago, people would give you an OxyContin prescription for a surgical procedure with, you know, for 100, 100 tablets of whatever. Now, you know, they limit that. They might give you only 10 or 15. I think that's good. And I think it should even be more limited. If you're not going to need it, maybe just stick with the non-steroidal. And I think that the other thing is, is that public awareness. You know, I mean, what we're doing here with this podcast for, for professionals and other listeners, but the public is, is becoming more aware and should become more aware of, of what concerns we have out there with proper drug disposal, with proper drug security, with, you know, the way that a medication is, should be taken what our medication does to us. I mean, maybe you don't really need an opiate and you need to be more cognizant of that. And the public should be speaking with the practitioner about it and discussing the matter with them prior to getting the medication from a pharmacy or even speaking with the pharmacist about it and to see proper way of taking care of the medication, to take the medication, to dispense the medication, all that kind of good stuff. I appreciate you taking the time with me today to explain all that. I, I think it was a great conversation. And if people wanted to get a hold of you for consulting services, how would they be able to do that? Well, they could, could always just, my email address is david.dryden, D-R-Y-D-E-N, at Dryden consulting.net and my phone number is 302-222-6859. Thank you very much. I wish you well in your procedure next week. Can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. That's my pleasure. Before we continue our discussion, I want to take a quick break to inform our listeners about NASCA. The National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities is a nonprofit that consists of regular members and associate members. Regular members are from various state governmental agencies who have some authority over controlled substances. Agencies like State Controlled Substance Authorities, Board of Pharmacies, Health Departments, State Attorneys General, or PDMP Administrators. Associate members are individuals and businesses like pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors, retail pharmacies, tech and data companies, and others. Their sponsorship provides funding that keeps NASCA operating and allows us to provide educational opportunities like webinars, podcasts, and the annual training conference. NASCA has an executive committee that leads the association. The executive committee is elected by the regular membership 
and only regular members are eligible to serve on the Executive Committee. In addition to the Executive Committee, we also have other committees where both regular and associate members work together. You can learn more about NASCA, its committees and educational opportunities by visiting our website at nasca.org. If you would like to know how to join NASCA or become a sponsor, please visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nascsa.org. So we're here at the 2019 NASCA Annual Training Conference in Richmond, Virginia. An RX Destroyer is supporting this year's conference with a display table. I'm a bit familiar with RX Destroyer because I've seen it in a hospital setting uh, where it's used to securely dispose of medications and waste. Uh, it's widely known, of course, that the number, of, uh, number one source for teenagers is obtaining prescription medications from friends' and family's medicine cabinets. So when I saw that they had products for the home, I thought it would be a good idea to have them tell us about uh, their product and a little bit more about their company. And our guest is Carrie Miller, who's the Vice President of RX Destroyer. Thank you, Carrie, for being here today. Thanks so much for having me, Alan. My pleasure. Tell me a little bit more about uh, RX Destroyer, if you could tell us about what the product is. And... Absolutely. RX Destroyer is manufactured by C2R Global Manufacturing where I work. I work for the manufacturer. And the product is made up of a patented liquid slurry combined with activated carbon. So it's ready to use when it's shipped to a, a home or a business. There's nothing to add. It has a vented cap on the top for those co-mingling of medications as well. So let's talk about how you guys started or where you first deployed the product. Was it hospital? Was it long-term care, nursing homes? Where did you? Yes. We actually started in the nursing home long-term care vertical market space and then moved on to the hospital space. We have about 85% of the market that uses RX Destroyer. Of course, there's still a lot of education to do in the market. It's only about 40% saturated, so it's very important to still educate and get the word out on how to properly waste controlled, non-controlled substances and patient medications at home. Product that's for nurses or for hospitals, how does it work for them? I mean, they put it in there, and how do they yes. determine how much is needed, you know, yes. when they need to get rid of the product? How does it work? Well, when a nurse goes to give, for example, a half a pill to a patient or a half a syringe dose, the DEA requires that that, that leftover medication needs to be wasted properly. So they simply insert that leftover medication inside the RX destroyer, and the RX destroyer makes that medication non-retrievable and non-reversible which is the DEA standard. Now, how long does it take from the time that nurse puts it in there for it to become non-retrievable? Yes, it depends on the medication, Alan. We have several independent studies on our website, rxdestroyer.com, and what we discovered is when you're commingling medications inside the bottle, it breaks down anywhere from three seconds to methamphetamine, which is seven days. So we can't give a real accurate account of when that medication breaks down 
but we do know the activated carbon on the bottom of the bottle, it sits on the bottom because it's heavier, will absorb that medication and make it non-retrievable. Do they have to shake it or anything? It should be agitated one to two times a day because that carbon sits on the bottom and it, we want it to wash over the medications. Again, on our website, we have a direction poster. So it's all spelled out for those business healthcare facilities. Okay, so what happens when uh, a facility like a hospital or a nursing home and they fill it up, how do they know when they've finished using the product and they need to dispose of it? Yes. And thank you for that. It is a reusable bottle until it's full. And the manufacturer recommends two inches from the top to remove that bottle and replace it with a new one. Now, where does the bottle go when it's full? It depends on state, local, federal, tribal process and requirements. Every state is different. But most likely, in a healthcare facility such as a hospital where the regulations are very tightly looked at, we would recommend putting that bottle back in the RICRA bin or the non-RICRA bin, the hazardous bin or the non-hazardous bin, depending on contents, and out for incineration. We have waste hauler partnerships as well. Now, the home product, because I was interested in that too, you guys have different sizes? We do, yes. We have a four-ounce product that's in every Walgreens nationwide, Allen, and that sits in a blister pack next to the pharmacy. And then we have a 16-ounce product, which hospice uses, uh, patients can use as well to empty their medicine cabinets. For example, if they don't finish their prescription or they have pets and animals and the animal doesn't need that full prescription, you just put that right inside the Arx Destroyer bottle. It's ready to use. And this is a liquid. You can actually hear it. I don't know if you can hear it on the podcast, but... Actually, hear that liquid. So, yes. this 16 ounce uh, container, how much does this run for? Uh, right around $10. And how many pills can you put in this? About 300 Advil size tablets, Alan. And then the littler one, which is four ounce, mm-hmm. which is in the blister pack, that's liquid too. Yes. And roughly how many pills are we talking about? 50. 50, 50 Advil size pills. Now, yes. there's a lot of patients too that will have liquid. Uh, medications that they need to dispose of. For example, promethazine with codeine. I was prescribed it and I didn't use all of it. And I had, you know, some, I had about half a pint, 240 milliliters. I think I took two tablespoons of it. Mm-hmm. Just didn't want to use any more. And of course, I have to dispose of it. So what kind of container would you recommend for someone who would have something of that nature? I would recommend that 16-ounce container, Alan, because it's a little bit bigger and it, it would handle liquid much better than that four ounce bottle, which you see is quite small. Uh, The four ounce, we'd prefer just pills in there. Uh, The 16 ounce can also accept patches if somebody has a, a medical patch to remove it and waste it properly. The whole idea on wasting your medications from the medicine cabinet into the RX Destroyer is you're, you're wasting into a totally green product that's good for the landfill. We have independent studies that say when you fill this bottle up, the RX Destroyer bottle, you throw it in the common garbage, which goes to the landfill, and it cleans up the chemicals around it. Does it become hard? It becomes hard, like a 
gray, muddy look inside the bottle. Does that happen in the bottle once it's full? It starts getting hard the, the fuller the bottle gets, and when it gets to the top, two inches from the top, it should be very solid at that point. Now, what about accidentally spilling this? If someone were to open this and they would get it on their skin, is there any danger of that? Excellent question, Alan. No, it's all non-hazardous materials inside the ARGS destroyer. And the patent is actually downloadable on our website as well. Now, you had said you can find these at... Yes, the four ounce you can find at Walgreens nationwide. And what does that sell? That sells for $5.99. And then the 16 ounce, you'd want to call us directly from our website, RX Destroyer, R-X-D-E-S-T-R-O-Y-E-R.com, and call into our personnel and they can sell that to you directly. Well, thank you very much again for explaining that to us. And to me, this is fascinating and and I'm sure quite useful. I appreciate you coming in. Thanks for being on. It's been my absolute pleasure. Let me know how else I might be able to help. I'm your host, Alan McGill. On behalf of the executive board of NASCA and our education committee, I want to thank you for joining us. The music for this podcast was provided by Joseph McDade. I want to thank Joe for his generous gift of music. And if you like Joe's music, please visit josephmcdade.com. You can support Joe on Patreon. You can also find all of our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever podcasts can be found. I also want to thank our platinum, gold, and silver sponsors. Without them, we could not provide educational opportunities such as this podcast. NASCA also invites you to join us at our annual training conference where we educate through networking, exchange of ideas, and by experiencing some of the best speakers on current topics and trends involving controlled substances. To learn more about NASCA, our conferences and educational programs, visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nasca.org. I hope you learned something and moved forward. Please join us again on our next podcast.